0: hey i'm dr rob welcome to biblical genetics there's a topic that i've wanted to talk about for a long time and it's finally uh, come bubbling to the surface where i cannot stop myself from talking about it today on this episode and the subject is dna repair systems how elegant they are how beautiful they are how complicated they are and some of the things that we have learned recently about what what puts them over the edge over the top of of wonder and complexity now, when we're talking about DNA, we're talking about a fragile molecule. Your DNA is constantly under assault from oxygen, from water, from things called reactive oxygen species that are usually made in the mitochondria, like um, a, a, an oxygen radical. You know, oxygen is, um, is two oxygen stuck together, the, the O2 molecule. Well, if you rip that in half, you have an oxygen with an electron, a free electron. I call it O dot or the oxygen radical. And that free electron will interact with any chemical it comes across. It will, it will, it will it'll destroy that chemical. It will oxidize that chemical. So DNA is constantly under salt from oxygen, reactive oxygen species like peroxides or oxygen radicals, uh, ultraviolet light, um, radiation damage. It also gets twisted and broken under the strain of being in a cell. It can literally get ripped apart. DNA is a fragile molecule. It's a sensitive molecule. And it requires constant vigilance to keep it from breaking down. Some older estimates, they said there's probably about 1 million DNA. They call them lesions. Those are oxidation events or breakages or things like that. 1 million lesions per cell per day. Oh, that's crazy. I mean, how does life persist? Well, life persists because we have a variety of different DNA repair systems. But a lot of these repair systems are also involved in regular cellular maintenance. I mean, when DNA is going to be made into an RNA, the polymerase has to go in between the two strands of DNA because it's only going to copy one strand. So the DNA strands have to be pulled apart. And like if you took a string, like a kite string or a yarn and grabbed one of the threads and pulled it, well, what's going to happen is you're going to get hypercoiling or supercoiling upstream and downstream from that place you're trying to separate. That happens normally in the cell. So the DNA has to be cut. Your enzyme system will snick the DNA and spin it around the other strand to open it up and loosen it up. And that, that snicking and uncoiling mechanism has to slide along the DNA as the polymerase is making a copy of it in the form of RNA. This happens all the time in your cells. But that system can also be used to fix DNA that has a stick, that has a break. And after the, the thing has been uh, made into RNA, well, now we, the DNA is all loose. It has to be called back up again. So the reverse process has to happen. But um, DNA repair systems are involved in these normal things, plus disease regulation, uh, detection and fighting cancer, other... Um, A chromatin packing a chromatin is your DNA that's wrapped around proteins. That's called chromatin and it's coiled up in your cell, but the chromatin has to change shape over time to expose or bury different genes to be used in different processes because you don't need every gene turned on at every moment of every day and some cells need some genes and some cells need other genes. And so the three-dimensional shape of the chromosomes changes over time. And these DNA repair systems are associated with that also. So DNA maintenance is critical and complicated and fun to study. And when you consider all the different mechanisms involved in the DNA damage response systems, they are, uh, it's it's shocking what your cell has to deal with. One of the things it has to deal with um, is chemical modifications. If your DNA reacts with something, well, your ACG and T has just changed. It's not an ACG and T anymore. It's a different chemical. And so you have enzyme systems that'll come in detect that change, attach to your DNA and fix it again, directly reverse the DNA damage without having to change much of the DNA at all. It just can chemically fix that. That's called direct reversal. Maybe one of the simpler forms of DNA damage and repair. Another one is called base excision repair. Now a base is a nucleotide plus a sugar plus a phosphate. It's one of the rungs on the DNA ladder. Another set is called nucleotide excision repair. There's also um, mismatch repair. Mismatches happen all the time. When you are, um, when your cell is copying the DNA, it doesn't make many mistakes, but it does make some mistakes. And occasionally it'll, it'll grab the wrong base and stick it in place. And so now you have an A. Across from a C, and they don't match because a C has three hydrogen bonds and the a, a has two hydrogen bonds. They don't bond together. You actually get a bulge in your DNA. And there are whole systems that come in and they target those. They find them, they target them, and then they will start uh, cutting the DNA apart. They might even remove multiple letters from one side of the DNA ladder, fill them in using the letters on the other side, and then DNA lig- ligase will come. And it will join things together and now we have a fix direct reversal base excision repair nucleotide excision repair mismatch repair there's also interstrand cross-link repair because dna as a chemical it can form covalent bonds with the other dna strand now instead of just being held by hydrogen bonds which can be separated by a polymerase or separated by gyrase or separated even by by warm water that will cause the strands to separate we have a physical linkage between the two dna strands and there's whole other dna systems that'll come in and fix that they will um cut the thing apart and then they'll do any kind of repairs necessary any other mutations happen either through the cross-linking or through the dna repair systems that can also cause all the problems which can be fixed with other suites of enzymes and finally double strand break repair This is something that happens normally in the cell. During um, the process of meiosis, when the eggs and the sperm are being produced, the two parental copies of the chromosomes are cut. And then a piece from the mother's chromosome is joined to a piece from the father's chromosome. But to do that, you have to cut both strands, double strand break repair. And the two DNAs will be joined together. And then the thing that's passed on to the child is a combination of the mother's and the father's DNA. But this also happens, like, if the cell finds a knot in the DNA, it needs, to, it needs to unravel the knot. Like, if you had a piece of string that's all knotted up, your only choice is to find the end and start passing it through all the loops and passing it through loops until you can finally get the whole thing unknotted. But the cell doesn't have to do that. The cell can actually cut one of the strands of DNA, pass it around the other strand, and then religate it together. And it just undid one of the knots. So that's really amazing and really cool. That happens normally in the cell, but the cell can also experience DNA breaks. The DNA can snap. And then now what? You have two free DNA ends floating around in the cell somewhere. If you consider chromosome one, it's almost a foot long. That one chromosome is a foot long. If you snap it in the middle, where are those strands going? Well, the cell can find them bring them together and just join them up. That's called non-homologous end joining. You can make a lot of mutations that way. There's another totally different form of joining double strand breaks, which is called homologous recombination. That's when you take the other chromosome, line up the broken chromosome on the non-broken chromosome and use the other chromosome as a template to fix any problems and then join the ends together. So there you have multiple different forms of DNA maintenance in the cell. It's complicated, it's wonderful to study. We've known these things for a long time, but the reason I'm talking about this is because of a paper that was published this week that brought all this up to a whole nother level. And it has taken my understanding of DNA uh, repair and DNA maintenance uh, way above what I understood before, and it, it has made things even more complicated than we thought. I love that, then we thought. That means we were wrong before, but even I was underestimating the level of complexity. So this is a paper by Kratz et al, uh, 2023, is titled, A Multiscale Map of Protein Assemblies in the DNA Damage Response. They use something called systems biology. This is real high-level type biology. They're not looking at a single gene or single protein or single interaction. They're taking all the genes, all the proteins, all the interactions as a whole and using essentially ai technology to discover new trends and new features that no one had noticed before now humans could have noticed it if we spent enough time studying it but the ai simply can process the information so much faster they're using network analysis so it's not just one little thing they're studying they're studying all these things together in a group to see how they relate to each other they're looking at uh, multiple scales and multi-omics multi omics what's an omic well you know the genome om is a root word meaning a collection of things i like to think of as even though it's not the same word it's not quite quite the right etymology a tome i'm pretty sure that tolkien used the word tome in the lord of the rings a tome in my mind is a big fat medieval book it might be dusty leather bound and inside that tome is a set of obscure knowledge with lots of details it's like the, the book of knowledge of this field, a tome. So the genome is the tome that contains all the genes. But that's not quite true. It's just the way I think about it. It's the genome is the ohm, is the group of all the genes, except that word right there is wrong. Because the genome is all the DNA in your cell, not just the genes. There's only 2% of the DNA. It's all the DNA. It should be the DNA ohm, but it's a little misnomer from days gone by. I'm not going to fix that Here. But the genome is all the DNA in your cell. But there's also the proteome. Does all the proteins in your cell. Well, different cells have different proteomes. And different times, different cells are producing different proteins because you don't have to have produce the same proteins as an adult that you had to do as an embryo. Or when you go through puberty and your liver cells never have to produce the same proteins that your brain cells produce. So we have the proteome and it varies from cell to cell and under different conditions and at different times. We also have the transcriptome which is all the transcription, all the RNA being produced from the DNA in your cell. And that is a contentious matter. Because once we start looking at the transcriptome, very quickly we realize the cell's producing a lot more RNA than it needs to if DNA or if the the, the genes are the operative functional unit of biology forever, we had the one gene, one enzyme hypothesis. We had the thought that a mutation can happen in the gene and create a change. And therefore, the protein coding genes are the important thing for evolution. Well, that's not true. The RNA is the important thing for biological maintenance and biological functionality and biological information. And most of the RNA is produced from the non-protein coding regions of the cell. In fact, most all the decision-making, most all the control levels in the cell is in a non-protein coding region. So when they first start discovering it's like, oh, this is parasitic DNA. This is just stuff that's broken and it's just being produced in the background, old viral infections, and that RNA is still being produced. all those arguments that they used to make, well, they don't hold water anymore. No, no the transcriptome is complicated because most of the transcription happens outside of the protein-coding region, and that's where all the cool stuff is happening in biology. That's the transcriptome. We also have the interactome. And that depends on what you're talking about. So you might be talking about all the interactions of all the proteins or the interactions of the proteins, the RNA or the RNA with DNA or DNA with RNA or DNA with proteins or RNA with proteins. I mean, it's very complicated. You can talk about the the interactions of the biological organic molecules with the inorganic molecules or atoms in the cell. The interactome depends on what you mean. I remember way back in, was it 2003, uh, a group uh, led by GIOT, I think is. I hope it's giat or giat, I don't know how to exactly how to pronounce the name, but they did a study on the interactome of the fruit fly. And they mapped all of these different um, proteins and they, they had this beautiful picture of, of not a cell, but a map. And in the middle was all the proteins found in the nucleus. And then a ring around that was all the proteins found in the cytoplasm and a ring around that was all the proteins found in the cell membrane and the extracellular proteins. And they only mapped about one third of the proteins that they discovered because if they had mapped them all and drew lines between all the proteins, which ones interact with which other ones, you wouldn't have been able to see anything except the black lines because there's so many interactions. In fact, I remember one of them, uh, they had like a a cutout and a cutout and they zoomed in and zoomed in to specific dots, specific proteins. And one of them had like, uh, I don't know, nine or 10 interactions with other proteins around it. When I say interactions, I mean like locks and keys multiple locks and multiple keys 3d fitting together like puzzle pieces. So if you had, um, imagine someone does, does a thumbs up sign, right? And that's a shape of a protein. Well, there's another protein that comes and grabs onto the thumb and blocks the action of the thumb. Another protein that comes on and opens up one of the fingers to change the shape of it. Now you have like a person pointing sign another one comes and blocks the thing or maybe even chops off the finger. So it can't work anymore. Another one will interact with the whole thing and change the shape of it. So now it has a totally different function. We're talking about three-dimensional locks and keys in multiple different ways, and that's the interactome. It is in itself crazy complicated. But Kratz et al. are using multi-omics methods, using basically AI to, to take all these disparate fields of knowledge together, throw it at computer systems, say, okay, computer systems, what can we learn? What interacts with what? What corresponds to what? How do these things network together? And they found incredible things. They found 605 proteins associated with DNA damage and repair systems. That was twice as many as we knew before. They literally doubled the number. We did not know these proteins are involved in the systems at all, and yet they are. So they had before uh, 297 proteins that they identified that were already known, and 308 brand newly documented never known before we knew the proteins existed but we didn't know they did this that also tells us that proteins have multiple functions in the cell if you change one protein you might be changing unexpectedly multiple different processes natural selection has a really hard time dealing with that because it means the signal is muted it's that is diluted the signal isn't clear it's not like one change produces one effect that natural selection can act upon no one change might produce multiple different effects that aren't related to each other and therefore what's natural selection going to do? Attack that thing or attack this thing? Yeah, it makes it really complicated and fun to talk about from a creationist perspective. But uh, some of these genes you're, you're aware of, like BRCA1 or brca or BRCA1, or BRCA1. that's the, the breast cancer gene, where women who have a particular variant of that gene have an elevated risk, not a guarantee, but an elevated risk of developing breast cancer uh, before they die. So that's BRCA1, but there's a lot of other proteins involved also, plus a whole lot of proteins that they didn't know. They found 12 proteins involved in DNA double-strand break repair that they didn't even know existed in the systems. And there they are, 12 brand-new associations they didn't know. They broke up these 605 proteins into 109 assemblies. So if you have 600 proteins and 100 groups, that's about six proteins per group on average. In other words, DNA repair and maintenance requires multiple proteins for each type of change. Multiple proteins. This is not something that can evolve because you need those things in place initially. And once you have them in place, mutations tend to be really bad. Get to that in a second, but they had 109 assemblies. 12 of those were brand new to science. They had 12 brand new pathways they didn't even know existed. And all of a sudden here they are. And now they're, they're charting to T's apart, uh, what these things do, how they're related to each other and you know, what function do they have of the myriad number of ways the DNA needs to be repaired and maintained. Here's 12 brand new pathways that now someone gets to explore. This is fun. This is amazing. Okay. Now going back to mutations, they are studying gene knockouts. So what happens if we delete that gene or mutate that gene so it doesn't work anymore? And something that surprised me, I expected most of those to be lethal, but what they found was instead of being directly lethal, a gene knockout can often just increase susceptibility to one type of mutation. So now maybe you're really sensitive to ionizing radiation or a particular toxin that your cell should have been able to handle, but now it's, it's extremely toxic because you don't know how to deal with that anymore and therefore causes DNA breakdown and either cancer or death. So that was really interesting. That means there's multiple levels of informational control here. And taking out one of the components of one of the systems doesn't you often totally destroy the system, but it can cause the system to go haywire eventually, which will eventually lead to uh, lethality or cancer or decreased lifespan or sometimes uh, mental or physical incapacities. Oh yeah, you change the DNA repair systems um, and you're producing a significant burden on the individual. You change them a little bit, you could be producing a significant burden on the population, but on the individual level, changes to these things are bad. And if you can't change them without killing or incapacitating or harming the individual, how do they evolve that way in the first place? So just consider the interactome that we talked about a little earlier. All those proteins in the fruit fly, if you break the link between those proteins, sometimes it's survivable. Sometimes you can make a white-eyed fruit fly. Or fruit fly with crumpled up wings. But most of the time when you break that link between the proteins, the fruit fly is dead. And it never grows up to be an adult fruit fly for a scientist to look at, to see, to look for some new mutation. It's just dead. Most of those links between most of those proteins are absolutely necessary. And if you can't change most of those links, you can't evolve the fruit fly. And it also raises the question, how did the fruit fly evolve to that place in the first place? And then consider that the human interactome amongst the proteins is at least 10 times more complicated than that of a fruit fly. You realize that evolution doesn't work. Evolution is not possible on the grand scale. Yes, you can get change over time. Fine. You can change some genes. You can change some protein interactions. You can create some new phenotypes. But most of the changes are in fact lethal and we don't generally see those. Most of the changes in the DNA repair systems are lethal. Some of them are survivable. Some of them only make you sick or make you weak or make you more susceptible to something or maybe they just decrease your total lifespan. Fine, but most of them are not survivable. And one more interesting thing about these DNA repair systems, a lot of them are associated with mitochondrial function. Remember the mitochondria, the powerhouses of the cell, those little things in your cells that convert sugars into energy and they have their own little piece of DNA, which is where we got the concept of mitochondrial Eve from, because the DNA is only inherited from the mother. Well, the mitochondria have some DNA and they have some genes, but cell has, the, the nucleus has most of the genes. The nucleus literally regulates the growth and propagation of the mitochondria by keep holding most of the cards themselves. So the nucleus like, oh, mitochondria, you need some food, here's a little bit of food. Oh, m- nuc- uh, mitochondria, you need a little bit of this protein, here's a little bit of that protein. Most of the stuff the mitochondria needs comes from the rest of the cell, but it can do a few things. But because the mitochondria are producing all the energy in the system, that biochemistry produces free radicals, that O-dot. It can produce hydrogen peroxides, H2O2. Those things are destructive to DNA. Well, imagine this. Imagine that um, you're designing a city. You have a city hall and you have some nuclear power plants. Where do you put your nuclear power plants? You don't put it next to City Hall. You put it out in the boondocks. And that's what the mitochondria are. The, the God, when he engineered the cell, he took those little nuclear power plants and brought them as far away from City Hall, that's the nucleus, as he could. And they're floating outside in the cell and they're producing their free radicals and they're destroying their own DNA. And this is why mitochondrial DNA has a much higher mutation rate. But they're not; those free radicals aren't destroying the nuclear DNA. But these DNA repair systems are heavily involved in mitochondria regulation. And that makes sense because the mitochondria need a lot of uh, maintenance, much more so even than the nucleus. So in the end, all we know is that DNA repair systems are required for life, would be in- essentially impossible to evolve, are incredibly complicated. In fact, it took supercomputers to figure out how complicated they are. And we're probably missing a few things even now. Took artificial intelligence to start understanding this because you know what we're not smart enough, or and a single individual doesn't have enough time to figure out all these interactions. Yeah, maybe if we had a thousand scientists studying this for a thousand years, we could have figured out this level. But the computer was able to do it much faster. What is this telling us? This is telling us that when God created life, He knew the biochemistry. He knew all the strains that DNA was going to experience. He knew that. The, the breaking and the oxygen being attacked with oxygen and other free radicals of the reactive oxygen species, they call them, and being attacked by water, uh, being twisted up in knots, having to separate. And so he anticipated all. He knew that and he put into the cell incredibly complicated, tightly regulated, exquisitely designed DNA maintenance and repair systems. If he hadn't done that, you would not exist. And so this tells us that our God is incredibly intelligent, incredibly um, good as an engineer. And he loved us enough that he put these things into our bodies so that we wouldn't be debilitated mutants. Now, some of us do have issues with this, and I, I feel for those people, but that's just an indication that this world is under the curse of decay. All of us eventually are going to succumb to this. If we don't get hit by a bus, we're going to die of cancer or something like that. That's uh, a lot of the things that that kill people in their old age uh, are dealing with DNA damage and repair. We are all under this curse. We are all laboring under, it's the entire universe is laboring under this curse. And all we can call out is Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come and save us before it's over. Now, if you're new to this and you've never heard a creationist start talking about complexity, I want you to seriously consider it. If you're still listening at all, uh, most of you, uh, atheists and, and anti-Creationist types, you, you either don't listen, or you listen for five minutes and mock, and then turn it off. But if you're still listening, I'm, I'm challenging you right now. You can't explain the origin of life. You can't explain the origin of complex life. You can't explain why life started using DNA in the first place. What a crazy chemical to use! That's cr- that's just silly. It should have used proteins of anything, even those kind can, of can't evolve by themselves. But life is way over designed and way over complex for you to explain with an unguided process. Now, I'm not talking about aliens. I'm not talking about Gaia. I'm not talking about you know some universal consciousness that spontaneously brings uh, things together. No, that is not explanatory enough. We need an outside power, something above the physical universe, imbuing energy and complexity into the simplistic atoms of the universe to create life. And that thing, that entity, that person is the God of the Christian Bible. The God of the Hebrew Bible also, but the Christian editions in the New Testament actually give us a full picture of who that God is. There's a lot more information on this online. They just don't jump anywhere though. Go to creation.com and start typing in things that related to Christianity and faith and belief. That's a good website. That's my, my parent company. That's their website, creation.com. I work for Creation Ministries International. I'm very happy to do that. And as biblical genetics, it's just a side branch that I have where things I can't talk about necessarily because they're too complicated. I bring them out here. I put them on YouTube and a couple other uh, video platforms and I put them out as a podcast. So if you're listening to this, thank you for listening. If you're watching this, thank you for lo- watching. If you like to help me spread the word, the single best thing you can do is share this with other people. Give it a thumbs up and a like and share it on social media or tell your friends about it. That's the best thing to do for me. I do have a group of very dedicated uh, financial supporters and I appreciate them so much. If you like to help contribute to that, there'll be links in the show notes. It's easy to do. There's two different platforms you can choose from, either single or monthly, but I don't want to get into that. My costs are covered. I love y'all so much. Thank you for your encouragement your encouragement keeps me going because this is hard it's hard to fight against the system it's hard to swim upstream it's hard to be a very minority position in the world of science but thank you for listening thank you for your support i love you all i hope i've encouraged some there'll be more in the future